0: The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American Hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. (music) Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loophole's Hunt Talk Radio.
1: Is that-
0: Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Loopholes Hunt Talk Radio. Today it is me and my buddy Andrew McKeon continuing our discussion about what he and I think is one of the biggest issues of our time. That being the governance of wildlife agencies, the huge changes going on in states like Washington, Colorado, some of the other Western states, we are seeing things starting to really, I don't know if unfold or unwind is the right word, but anyhow, huge changes. And if you think this can't happen in your part of the world, you are sadly mistaken. Today, Andrew and I are lucky that We have a guest, Dr. Kim Thorburn. Uh, Kim was on the Washington, State of Washington Wildlife Commission for eight years. She recently termed out, and during her period on the commission, she was a very sound voice for wildlife management, for the public trust doctrine, for inclusion of all values and considerations. And if you listen to a podcast I did a couple months ago uh, with some guys from Washington, you you realize that their commission has really taken a hard turn towards the animal rights ideology. While Kim was on the commission, the the commission, the the members appointed with the you know this, if you want to call it, new age view met and they crafted their own little new policy document a big policy document uh, at the exclusion of Kim and a couple other commissioners. Um, So she's going to give us some insight about how that happened, what happened, how to hopefully prevent it, how to see it happening and maybe some recommendations and suggestions of how this could be prevented from happening in your state. Her, Kim, and and Andrew and I have been swapping emails here and putting together an outline. I'll, I'll try my best to keep track or keep us on the path for most of it. But I hope that you will listen to this podcast. Kim is on and has been on the front lines of where this huge change is happening. She has been in there. She's been a dissenting voice against this craziness. And here's the thing that I know most of my audience is hunters. Kim is not a hunter, but she has a strong belief and she is a strong advocate for the story and the cause and the values of hunters. And she's going to provide that to us today. So I really appreciate her being here. I appreciate all of you being here. And I really appreciate Andrew taking the time, the interest of you know we, we've been working on this for 10 months now uh he's, he's such a smart guy he's so insightful so articulate uh this entire podcast series is is benefiting from from all of Andrew's hard work to get ready for it so thanks for being here we're gonna have a really interesting discussion as quick as I hit this button Well, folks, thanks for being here today. I appreciate you following along with this podcast series that we're doing. Today, we have a special guest. I am so grateful that this person has taken the time to to meet with us and to spend some time swapping emails and putting together a script and an outline. Uh, Dr. Kim Thorburn spent Eight years on the Washington Wildlife Commission, and she's with us today. And when I say us, I forgot you, Mister McKean. Andrew, how is life up in Glasgow, Montana
1: today? It's every day is a beautiful day on the Highline when the wind doesn't blow, and it's a fairly still day. There is no uh, particular lake warning advisory on Fort Peck. The box elder bugs have popped. We went right from wasp season to box elder bug season, so it's uh, things are good.
0: Well, it's just elk season here, down in this part of Montana. But uh, oh, Doctor Thorburn, I'm, I'm. You told me I can call you Kim, so I'm. I'm at ease with that, if uh, if you don't mind. Since my wife's name is Kim. Uh, but thanks so much for being here. Are, are you in, based in Spokane or Western Washington?
2: No, I'm in Spokane. So, uh, yeah. Um, uh, is. I will add a little bit about my commission experience and, um, a little bit more about my biography. Uh, so yeah, uh, Spokane, the way that the uh, Washington commission is comprised uh, is there are nine of us <clears throat> were <laughs> it's past tense now for me. Uh, and, um, uh, I, there are, uh, there, the, um, Appointments are made by geography. So there are three that are designated for Western Washington slots, three for Eastern Washington slots, and uh, three for at large. I filled an Eastern Washington slot. And then actually, when I was appointed in 2015, I. Um, It was interesting because there were a lot of Eastern Washington legislators who were a little hesitant about my appointment. Um, They didn't feel that I truly represented Eastern Washington values well enough. Um, I had actually run for a county office in a party that doesn't do so well on the eastern side of Washington. And I think that's kind of where their judgment about me came from. Uh, but of course, it was a Democrat governor who appointed me. <laughs> um, and so uh, anyway, I, I met with a lot of the legislators before I was um, confirmed and tried to reassure them that I um, held Eastern Washington values, <laughs> but I had to. I think I sort of had to walk my talk for a while before everybody felt okay about it. I think a lot of folks were <clears throat> a little uncomfortable about my appointment. I um, I actually am um, to use the traditional term a non-consumptive wildlife user, meaning I don't hunt and I don't fish. Um, I uh I'm a bird watcher. I do very much consider myself a wildlife consumer. Um I I think bird watching is uh is out there disturbing the wildlife. <laughs> Maybe in ways more than than traditional sports sportsmen and women do. So um that was that was kind of how I got into, um, my work with fish and wildlife. I, um, had retired as a public health physician. I ran the county health department here for a number of years and was kind of tripping around for things to do in retirement and have, well, as a bird watcher, um, and a very much an outdoors person, uh, sort of landed with Fish and Wildlife and some of the other public lands agencies doing wildlife surveys and um, then getting extremely involved um, <clears throat> with um, a, a sage-grouse and sharp-tailed grouse uh, recovery project here uh, in Washington. Um, both der- uh, both those species are state endangered, and we've been really working hard for 30 to 40 years to try and improve the populations, not having a whole lot of success. But I, I really did a lot of on-the-ground field work for a while. When a hunter friend suggested um, there were some vacancies on the commission and why don't I just throw my hat in? And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I like doing program stuff, but I also love doing policy. And uh, so I did. <laughs> it took a while before they decided I might be a fit. Um, I, I think, <laughs> quite frankly, that the the governor's idea of what a fit was uh, turned out to be a little bit different than what I was. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was, you weren't that yeah, I wasn't what I expected, I think ultimately um so i I was appointed into a vacant position, filled that out for two years, did um was not well enough understood yet, I think, to not get reappointed to a full term. Our terms are six years here, so that makes the eight years that I served
0: gotcha wow that's a that's an interesting background because uh with nine of you on the washington commission and now having followed this for the last two or three years how ironic that some people said kim you got to earn your stripes here and you've kind of become the the standard bearer right there on the front lines for people who do hunt and fish and uh (laughs) <laughs> That's really cool. I, I did not know that you, your background didn't include those those activities that Andrew and I come from.
1: I I think Kim, one of the interesting places that you represent in this spectrum of time is how the uh, the gubernatorial appointments and sort of what the governor might be looking for, assuming that there was a a specific attribute that that he was trying to fill, has changed in that eight years um can you talk a little bit about that and i think it might be important to this is the second of what we hope is four episodes we're picking on washington because washington is so pickable um and you really represent this this really seismic change of who commissioners represent and what they're doing as commissioners with within or without their authority so how did that change over the time that you were there
2: um so I think um that it was a truly an evolution the entire time that I was there. I think several forces um sort of nationally have come forward uh i there's truly a movement, I think in the animal rights uh, community uh to um compose fish and wildlife governance of. Animal rights believers um, I, I think that's a strategy of the movement you know they the, the movement um, and, and, and it truly is you know and it's influential and well funded and there are <clears throat> um, major organizations that support it they've tried lots of strategies to have their I- ideal their beliefs become the social norm. They, uh, you know, the, the first thing was, it came out of philosophy departments, uh, infiltrated uh, law schools. They've developed lawyers who have tried to change social norms through the courts. Fortunately, most judges have had the good sense to recognize that this is really a, ba- a battle of, uh, values and social norms, and that really is something that legislatures should handle. Um, and so they're trying to figure out how to move that effort into the policy realm. And this came together with the effort um, started by the Blue Ribbon Committee of AFWA um, to, to um, broaden their base through their um, relevance work, um, realizing that um, the um, fish and wildlife departments now have such a, a, so much larger plate than game management and fishing rules and that sort of thing. Um, they you know since fish and wildlife departments are are the responsible body for fish and wildlife, all fish and wildlife within their jurisdiction. Um, And then we have all sorts of federal laws like Endangered Species Act um, that designate these critters as imperiled in some way, and and they need protections. It falls on the states to do that. and, And there hasn't been the secure funding for that work That there has been for game management, so um, Fish and Wildlife was going. What are we going to do about this? We need to broaden our our base so that we have more support and start getting the funding support that we need. So along comes the relevance movement, Um, and uh, this. So that joins with this effort by animal rights, the animal rights movement to get more involved with policy and they take a look at oh wow governance
0: hey folks we're in the middle of application season and you know what i use for applications right for draw odds for filtering for strategy articles it's the big sponsor of this platform gohunt if you want to have that tool available to you before application season ends go out there now sign up use promo code randy And when you do, they're going to put $50 of credit in your gear shop account. And mostly, you're going to have the information you need to draw that tag and go hunting this year. GoHunt.com, promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium-grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler e-tips, acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com. Or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt gear shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch Pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code Randy, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks can't beat them. Go check them out.
2: Let's infiltrate governance and we can change policy um, to... A more animal rights anti-hunting approach, and and I think these forces all sort of came together and have been evolving throughout my tenure. And I think I, you know, as I was sort of alluding to, because I'm a non-consumptive wildlife user in the old-fashioned sense, um, that uh, you know I was identified early on as one of the people that would help promote that. Um, And then the governor just got a little bit clearer in his screening (laughs) or of his candidates. But I I think he's been on board for a while.
0: (laughs) Hmm. So it's uh, from your observation of this and, and it confirms what a lot of people have been thinking that this is the term you use, Kim, is a movement. Uh, it's a movement that's well funded, it's orchestrated, it's rehearsed, it's it's effective, and they have identified governance of wildlife commissions or wildlife agencies as a way to accomplish what they've failed to do in the courts or failed to do legislatively and uh, a lot of us have been like oh no our governors would never abuse that power they they understand the importance of wildlife to their citizens and the diverse values that we all have and i think we all kind of i don't know if fell asleep is the right word but we just at least myself i could not envision a governor trying to stack a deck to accomplish some objectives that Really aren't reflective of what a statewide trustee type body would be hold, be held to, and uh, that's an interesting observation. I <laughs> you see me smirking here, we can see each other. Kim's probably like, "What's Randy laughing about?" I, what I'm laughing about, it, not laughing but smirking, is you've confirmed in your observation what a lot of people have wondered: was this orchestrated? Is this is this really? the tactic of the movement. Can we use that term? The movement? Is that? Okay. Uh, That's what we're okay. going to use. The movement.
2: You know, I think the, the, also the entire political environment has has fueled this. I, you know, everything is partisan now. And so this has become partisan. And, and um, you know, people who aren't um, sort of steeped in animal rights idealism uh, it sounds so good you know i mean treat animals better animal well-being animal welfare all that stuff of course we should be in favor of that and so if you're a policymaker with lots of things on your plate um and, and you know that's kind of the verbiage that's being used it's like well of course and and then it and then we've also made it partisan um, so, you know, it's Democrat versus Republican, actually. Um, and and I think, you know, just the whole environment we're living in has has been fuel for the, for all of this.
1: Well, one of the uh, frontline perspectives that I would hope you would share is, is your dealings with the professional staff at the agency. And I asked this question coming from an alumni of Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, where my colleagues and agency folks generally are nonpartisan. They've got a job to do. They're they are managing wildlife in accordance with those policies you're talking about, but also a whole series of traditional data collection points and expectations of constituents, and there's just a lot within that that sort of job description. I'm curious how this change in commission priorities were met by the rank and file, file agency folks.
2: So that also, I think, is pretty complicated. Um, it um, early on, I think that uh, it was uh, met with, well, times are changing, and uh, you know, we have a public whose values are changing, and. Um, You know, we just need to be receptive, not really thinking through consequences, nor thinking about compatibility with the profession, professional practice and professional values. But, oh, you know, we just all um, need to understand this and and go with the flow, so to speak. Um. I, I think uh, that really the um, relevance work uh, that uh, has been done in the introduction of a, a specialty of um, conservation social science, um, in fact, has kind of contributed to this. <clears throat> because um, one of the ways this was kicked off, as I understand it, was um uh, the uh, OFWA worked with Colorado State University and and measured wildlife values. They they characterized them and um, it, it sort of created what was supposed to be a spectrum, but it really kind of turned out to be either or. And that's how it was kind of presented or or, or evaluated in agencies. They did they would look at values across the population and then they would look at the values and the agencies and they, the, um, scientists, the social scientists would come and say, well, look, the values of your agency personnel don't match the values of the general population. And, oh, this is a problem. <laughs> well, no, it isn't. I, I mean, It's sort of like the message is, this is a problem that needs to be resolved. Your agency personnel need to become more like the general population. And it's like, well, no, (laughs) our agency personnel are trained scientists and professionals who, you know, understand (laughs) wildlife conservation and management. And of course, their values are going to be different than people who are, dealing with wildlife through Discovery Channel. And I mean, that's their main experience. Um, And (laughs) so um, I think the, the message somehow got all blurred. We need to understand these values over here of the general community, but we don't need to become those values. And I think that's been... A real struggle and and then as as um governance in Washington became the values of the animal rights movement um it it has really been demoralizing um for staff um, and um you know in fact um Randy referred to my article in part, I wrote that it's to try to be a morale booster for the profession. It's like, you know, guys, it's okay. You have professional values. They're embodied in the North American model. You know, it, you. It, it is a professional value that um, there are legitimate reasons for killing wildlife. Um, and um, you need to be comfortable with that. There are legitimate reasons for killing wildlife, um, but I, I think you know that the, the the whole work on values has made them sort of afraid to to stand up for their values. And I think it's easier for me coming out of um, health, medicine, and and public health because. You know we're very ingrained with professional values. I mean, you know, first I, I have to give it an oath, you know, when I become a doctor, that I will stick by my professional values. So, so we're, you know, I mean, when somebody comes along and says I'm I'm an anti vaxxer and I want to speak at your conference, it's sort of like sorry, <laughs> you know, that's a little bit too far from where we stand in public health. So. <laughs>
0: So, one of the things that, and when you're talking about this demoralizing and you trying to raise their morale, I watched the uh, online. I watched your Wildlife Commission meeting. I think it was in the spring of 2022 when you were deciding whether this spring bear hunt would continue. And you had a biologist get up there, and the presentation was a plus. And I'm like, well, there's no, there is no there is no way they are not going to approve this type of a season. This person has provided everything that you could ask for to justify a season of a population that is healthy, robust, and sustainable. And it got shot down. I can't imagine how demoralizing that would be to someone whose career has been there talking about how to manage diverse interests with regard to this species. And now the people who actually have the levers of power above them say, you know, we we, we don't care about all that. Our values are different. So you just throw that in the trash. We're, we're, we're not going to listen to you anymore. And maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I felt as deflated as that biologist and that manager did just watching that. And that was when my eyes really opened to what was going on in Washington. I'm like, "Oh my goodness, this this is as you said, Kim, this is a movement. This 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 is not just a couple people disagreeing. This this is a a I, I don't know if the, maybe I'll, I'll use a word that that you uh wrote in, in that article I keep referring to in the, the Wildlife Society magazine is value polarity. That if ever I saw it in play, value polarity, your term that you use, was in full display uh, that day. And it seems to have continued. And it, it seems like that's a lot of what what is at the crux of this.
2: The, the sad thing is... Um you know, I, and I've, I've thought a lot about how, how do you, um, create, how, how can you just ensure that you've created a governance body, um, that, that does its job. And, you know, I think the first thing in a, um, governance of an entity, um, where there's conflict and, you know, there's always been conflict and, uh, wildlife conservation and management. I, I, when I first came on, I, I, I think I mentioned to you once, Andrew, that I, I called it food fights. It was fighting over seasons and, and methods and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, it's, that's what, um, good governance should be about is, is, um, doing the best you can to, to bring together these diverse values in a way that minimizes conflict. And you know, by the end, I was telling my fellow, um, commissioners, you're creating conflict. That is not our job. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, they've, I think that's how it's seen. Um, it i i go back to you know a number of years ago um well to back up a little bit you know governance it ha- it has to be um it, it has to have a lot of authority i mean if you think about what governance is supposed to do um and so it's kind of hard to put up guardrails um, around that authority. Washington really has pretty good laws about how the commission is created um, and and what, I, I think it's very clear what its role is supposed to be. I mean, our statutory mandate basically is a recitation of the public trust doctrine. And, um, but, but that has not turned out to be enough. Um, it, it's something I hope we can use in the future to, to move things along. But, but how do you ensure that you have good faith appointments, um, people who believe in the mission?
0: Talk Radio is brought to you by
2: Outdoor Class.
0: Outdoor Class is
2: an online
0: learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So all for one subscription at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code Randy when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code Randy to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also presented by our wonderful friends at Mountain Tough. If you're like me and you want to hunt until you're 80, or maybe you just want to keep up with the younger folks or your kids later in life, you need to start focusing on your health and your nutrition. It's never too late to get started. I just started and I'm 59 and yeah I should have started 20 years ago but I've made that commitment and the Mountain Tough app makes it so easy. So if you want to invest in your health and your hunting start your free trial today. Go to mountaintough.com and when you sign up for the free trial they're going to give you 14 days free. But when you sign up and use promo code Randy, they're going to add an extra 30 days onto that free trial when you select the monthly plan.
2: So what I was leading up to is going back a few years ago, you know, um, the Sierra club um, was almost taken over by an entirely um, different group with a completely different idea about the mission. So there, you know, there is a nonprofit's um, precedence to this kind of thing. And I think, you know, that's been recognized and how you protect against it. I, I, um, There's a, a conservation science nonprofit that I really like and have been a contributor to. And recently they changed their governance form from uh, members voting for the board to the, the board appointing the board to try and protect against this chance for infiltration. How you do that with a government body, government entity governance is even more challenging.
1: One of the questions I have for you, Kim, um, from this frontline perspective is you talk about the value polarity and the, these values that are energizing so much of this discussion. And I would observe just sort of parenthetically that values are a hard thing to change. They're hardwired into people. And so I think, I think one of the frustrations that Randy and I have had in communicating this within our community is we also approach these things from a value basis. And those values may be diametrically opposed to the, this movement that we're talking about. And so there's inherent conflict within that, but, When it comes to wildlife management, and you mentioned the North American model, and one of the pillars is to manage wildlife according to the best accepted science. And as a scientist yourself and someone who has sort of lived a professional life based around science, I'd love to get your perspective on how how is science being either, you know, observed or trashed or uh, belittled or, you know, sidelined within this this new sort of paradigm?
2: Yeah. So what I um, have recently really been able to articulate and understand um, is that, uh, you know, because I kept hearing from them best available science, best available science. And then they would challenge our scientists and, um, you know, bring in some article often, I had no idea what it had to do with what we were talking about, that they'd be waving around an article. And um, then there was a recent incident um, after I was off the commission, I was watching and, and one of the commissioners um, had a little um, blow up (laughs) at some testimony. And um, the statement that was made by the commissioner was, um, I've tried to engage with the hunters and and why on this screen bear and why don't you just go out and hire your own expert? And I, I was like, ding, that's what's going on. When they talk about best available science, it's dueling experts. it's dueling studies um, and and that makes a lot of sense because if you think about where, um, animal rights really started to try and infiltrate was through the courts. And that's what we do in the courts. We bring in this expert, we bring in that expert. That is not best available science. Science is an evolving body of knowledge that you have to critically analyze, critical analysis of the evolving body of knowledge is best available science, but that isn't what's going on here. <clears throat> and um, it's it, and and the the other point I wanted to make about that was, um, so the movement the the group in um, Washington that is is driving this, Washington Wildlife First, um, you know, kept uh, harping at the governor, you need to appoint scientists. You know, I mean, we need. We don't need scientists on the commission. Um, in fact, it's probably a bad idea because most scientists who've worked in the field are research scientists and they have, you know, they're specialists on what cougars or deer or birds or something like that. They don't have a broad outline of, you um, you know, the, the science of wildlife conservation and management, they're bringing the latest article out of their field. And, and, you know, that's why I have staff in the department. I want them to be stand on top of the literature and doing that critical analysis and everything, not bringing my dueling scientists in to argue about an article.
0: I don't want to laugh because it, it, it just seems so strange. It's so far out in the weeds for a commissioner to tell a constituent, well, go get your own, you know, you, your group whatever, tag or label, you guys should go get your own science. Uh, Andrew, you sat on our Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Commission for a while. Anyone ever say anything that? that far out in the weeds in your time there and i've been attending commission meetings for 30 some years online or in person i've i've never heard a commissioner say something to that degree
1: no in fact if 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 anything it was i want more data i want more science i want more sort of uh reference points by which and for which to make a decision So what Kim is talking about, I think, is is wildly unorthodox. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) polite way to put it.
2: Well, I mean, it, it was unorthodox. I think it's becoming a bit more of the orthodoxy, unfortunately. So,
0: Kim, when when we're talking about a reconciliation of, and I don't mean. Like discounting or, or reconciling in a financial sense, I'm we're we're trying to account for and reconcile and in meld a, a policy that reflects as as many values as possible. It seems like in Washington, from my observation, from talking to people, there's a little bit of the well, we're the majority. We got appointed by the person who they won the statewide election. And therefore, our values are going to be the value of the day, and everybody else 's value gets discounted, ignored, pushed aside Am, am I seeing that right it, it 's like oh now we don 't it 's almost like an excuse that we don 't need to be accountable to other values
2: that was a huge piece of the final dis, the discussion during the final day when we made the decision to cancel. Um, hunting black bears in the spring, um, a lot. You know, this is the majority. Um, but uh, I kept trying to remind my colleagues. You know, we are not. And 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 I also think that uh, wildlife for all and and the work that Kevin Vixby. Puts forward is, you know, we, these organizations need to be more democratic. What he's referring to and what they're referring to is representational democracy, elected individuals. I mean, that's how, you know, the, our, our legislative system works. That's fine. I, you know, if they want to say that black bear in Washington um, shouldn't be a game species. Take that to the legislature. Actually, they're the ones who have that in statute, and and I would bet. I mean, and, and the reason that they, they they don't do that is it's not going to work. I mean, I really don't think that the legislature would remove black bears. I didn't New Jersey try to do that and got in trouble. Remove black bears as a, as a game species. Um. So, I. Uh, You know, but they're going, well, we've got the majority representation. But that is not what governance is. Governance is not um, representational democracy and majority. Governance is um, having the voices of stakeholders and doing the best you can to bring together those diverse values in a fair and equitable way. It's hard work. I mean, it's really hard to do, and the the, the other piece that that I, I a representation representational democracy is probably a little bit easier because you can have you know your Democrat or Republican position, but um, the the other other piece of that is I would hear so often in testimony. Um, or or talking to people from uh the animal rights community. Um, well, my values aren't represented. And, and it's like, but your values are you wanna ban everybody else. <laughs> and yeah, it's at the exclusion you know, of everybody that, else. I, I can't be inclusive with people whose who say the only way I can be represented is if I ban everybody else. That just isn't inclusive. It isn't my job.
1: (laughs) Kim, you, uh, you shared something with us. It was a letter that you sent to your fellow commissioners. I presume your former commissioners or former colleagues that referenced some best practices that the wildlife management Institute uh, derived that really describe uh, a functional commissioner, wildlife trustee. I think they, they were so well done because what you did is you put, you took point by point. This is, this is a model commissioner and here's what they, how they behave and, and what they represent. And then you, you said, here's where we are abrogating that duty. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's, that's something that unifies Washington with Montana, with, Missouri with these wildlife commissions don't exist to be political pawns or they don't exist or they shouldn't exist to be, um, representing a narrow constituency. Instead, I think they really do have some sort of attributes that are, that are pretty noble. Um, can you talk about what they are? And then maybe two or three points where you felt like, or feel like Washington has not abided by the best practices
2: sure, um so so um the the uh, principles you're referring to have been published by the Wildlife Management Institute, and what they did was they they took wildlife values and they melded them with um other kinds of work that's been done on what is good governance and if you think about um the role of the commission. Um, we spend a lot of time in values. I, you know, we're informed by science and in developing our rules and policies, but what we're settling on is values. And, and so um, good governance principles um, speak to um, how you deal with diverse values. And it includes such things as, um, open and transparent processes, um, accountability, um, how you take input, um, you know, sort of not promoting agendas that you're, you know, you're, you're taking in and representing, um, all of constituencies and, um, so what what you're referring to was testimony I submitted uh, currently before the commission is um, a conservation policy that they are intending to adopt and um, <laughs> this has been in the works I, I uh, for a couple of years I actually uh, was on the commission when a draft was suddenly dropped on a committee the subcommittee of the commission that I was on and I was a little horrified. Um, I'd never seen it. Um, it, it, that isn't how we generally have done major policies in the past. We sort of give a framework to the staff, staff draft something. If it's going to be controversial, they set up an advisory committee. They have public meetings even before drafts come forward. This just kind of popped in and, um, it had some definition of conservation that (laughs) was a little weird. And um, I, I kind of went through the ceiling and so I was directed, well, I I said, this isn't inclusive, you know, conservation is inclusive. We need to have, I mean, this is all hands on deck with the sixth grade extinction going on and everything. We need everybody on board. And so, so I was tasked to rewrite it. Um, that never saw the light of day. It kind of, for the next couple of years, just getting on a committee agenda and then not happening. Um, and then um, the, it, it finally appeared the first meeting um, after I was off the commission and and they went, oh, wow, this is a great job. And it actually, it had gone through some cycles and it was 360 degrees back to what it had been practically and um so but it's been secretive oh and then then what comes forward is um at a meet i I was watching um uh on video i was watching a meeting and um the governor's policy analyst who's um responsible for appointing or or vetting the appointees to the commission um, was prior to her recent appointment to this position, an animal rights lobbyist. And she comes and testifies before the commission. And she goes, this is a great conservation policy. I'm so excited to see it. You know, back before I was in this current position, I was actually working on it. I, she says this publicly, <laughs> In a oh. and and uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, so, I, and that's what it is. I mean, it, it's basically an animal rights policy. It it, it, it um, defines wildlife as it, it it sets aside the public trust doctrine. Desi- des, um, defines wildlife as beneficiaries. Um, you know, and of course their resources, I mean, there's a reason we have natural resources, right? So that we can, um, in good trust, share them now and into the future among all of us. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but they're, they're suddenly beneficiaries, which of course is a big deal with, um, animal rights believers. Um, and then, uh, you know, it puts in like, um, all sorts of vague terms like precautionary principle, which of course, since we're facing the great climate change, um, precautionary principle is we should never kill the wildlife, right? I mean, that's how it's going to be interpreted. Um, And the the other thing is that it was uh, um, giving all sorts of authorities to the wildlife department, like, you know, we needed to ensure clean air and uh, that we stop climate change and all this other stuff. Um, I mean, all these things that violated um, good governance principles. So what I did was I, I just put down all of these principles and then I pulled things out of this document. Um, Besides the fact that it was a secretive process that brought it to us, continues to be a secretive process. And Um, As with, um, you know, as as you were saying, Randy, with Spring Bear, they've never given an explanation for why they had to cancel a perfectly legitimate limited entry management hunt that we let recreational um, hunters carry out, which is how I think we should try to do management hunts. But I I mean, there's just no transparency and accountability of what's going on
0: that's uh, uh you see, you we can see each other and it's the audience that can only hear the audio and yeah uh, i wish we were recording the video because if you could see the look on my face and andrew's face as you were walking through that kim i, I mean we're trying not to laugh it's just so far outside the norm of how most governance happens within a wildlife agency that you couldn't... I, I, I don't think you could end up there by accident. And, I, I, you know, in my life, I have 35 years as a CPA who specializes in trust, and when someone says they're going to take the public trust doctrine and say the trust corpus, the wildlife, is now one of the beneficiaries, that, that that's a completely incompatible... Nonsensical, never before introduced idea that somehow trust corpus has the rights of beneficiaries. And beneficiaries, going back to trust law, there's a definition of what a beneficiary is. It's it's a person, either now or it's a a future beneficiary. You know, in in as Roosevelt would say, in the in the womb of time, it's. It isn't uh, the only way you can make that leap is if you say these corpus items, these trust assets, have our same rights. Yes. That that's, <laughs> that's the only
1: way you can yeah. get there. The only way, and this is really I'm trying to I am trying to enter the mind of somebody who can like arrive at this conclusion. And it's hard. So excuse me if I like express some magical thinking here. But the only way that that could even work with a straight face is to say animals are equal to people and then, but therefore the trust is the habitat, right? And I think that's probably what they would say, that the corpus of the trust aren't the animals, it's the air and the water and the forest's and that is so contrary to our very successfully managed traditions of wildlife management that I can't, I, I'm kind of laughing to myself, but I, I, I think that's maybe what they're getting at.
2: I That's, that's very interesting to hear that analysis, um, Andrew, because I, I, I share your perplexity. I, that, um, that thinking about their language um, because they, they use all that language, you know, ecosystem and habitat. And and I've just never been able to understand how that all fits together. Um, you know, it, it, um, their systems, you know, we don't break it apart. And when we're working on conservation and management, it's the whole community of wildlife and plants and everything else. You don't separate them, but that's, uh, yeah, I mean, it happens i think in in the thinking there is this separate oh i i know uh once uh when we were early in the pandemic and just starting on zoom i i made some comment about um you know it's the population that we're concerned about not a dead wolf or something like that and and um Oh boy! <laughs> did, did I get to come back So and, and I see that all the time. You know, I it's I right now. You know, we're looking at we still have um, gray wolves is in indan- You know, state endangered in Washington, and and we've got a periodic status review that's <laughs> looking at um, a downlisting, which. Oh yes. I mean, wolves are doing fine. We did some really good mock uh, population modeling with the UW co-op and, and I, uh, you know, wolves are here to stay. Um, as anybody who understands wolves, once they're here, they're going to be here to stay probably if you give them a little habitat and, and uh, let them breed. And um, <clears throat> so, so, you know, they need to be downlisted. They're creating a lot of problems for those who live with wolves and, and um uh, the testimony that we hear from, um, the advocates is that you killed 10% or 10% of the wolves got killed last year. Well, you know, since wolves arrived, it's been 10 to 12% mortality every year and it's humans who kill them. Um, I, you know, they're otherwise, they survive anything other than maybe an outbreak of distemper every once in a while. But, um, so you know there's nothing wrong with 10 mortality we've shown we still grow the wolf population but that's you know that's all they talk about and and you can't take it a step further because that's their focus and and then the other thing that that I was always bothered by was there are certain species that um, seem to have more importance than other species, and you can't do that with wildlife. I mean, well, I I know I I was we were having a mountain lion discussion one day in um in the commission, and I I can't remember what I why I got this combat uh, comeback, but um, one of the commissioners sort of mumbled under her breath so that everybody could hear said, "Well, I'd rather worry about mountain lions than butterflies." It's like, oh, <laughs> that's interesting. And you're a, a conservation person. <laughs> so, uh,
0: so, Kim, how, how does this get accounted for? Or maybe it doesn't. This movement, this ideology, this mindset, the, whatever you want to call it, I don't know, spirituality. I, I, I don't even know what, what term to put to it. But, you know, I, I think about indigenous people in their relationships with wild things. And this ideology says there is no human component to this complex thing that we manage as Trust Corpus. And I'll just, I use indigenous people because I have a lot of friends and I'm always concerned about their voices being represented in these discussions, But or even rural people who this is a great food source for them. It is an activity for them. It is It is it it is very important to a lot of people beyond just saying, oh, I sleep better at night because I know there are more wolves or mountain lions or bears or whatever it is. It seems like a pretty bigoted view. If you take the term bigotry, you know, bigotry says intolerance of other viewpoints. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I know they wouldn't want to be called bigots. You know, that that would be like the worst term that could be hung on them. But this intolerance of any other view and any appreciation for the importance that wildlife serves and the relationships that other people have with wildlife that might be different than theirs is just is it are they comfortable saying, "Well, too bad." I mean, do they even worry about it? Think about it, or is it just no? We discount it. We we got appointed. We we've grabbed the levers of power, so you just shut up and like it.
2: I um, you you raised a lot of points in there that that I have thought a lot about. Um, one is, um, I used to sit and listen to testimony, thinking bigotry, bigotry, <laughs> bigotry. I mean, that term comes to my mind as well. Um, so starting with um, indigenous values, um, one example that I um, like to look at is um, the Marine Mammals Protection Act, which is really, it is totally preservationist um, animal rights. Um, and and I'm old enough to remember um, its origins and, and all of the advocacy that was going on in those horrible racist ads that we would see on tv and everything from um uh, animal rights and related kinds of organizations of um seal hunt, uh, in, in, ex, in in seal hunts um and um you know it led to something that is so strict that no marine mammal in the united states can be hunted Well, the macaw in Washington, um, I mean, that's so fundamental to their culture, Um, to hunt whales. Not a lot of whales. It's, It's a spiritual practice. It's in their treaty. And for over 20 years, they've been trying to work through channels to restore that hunt and it's it, you know i mean there have been horrible um uh, demonstrations carried out on that little end of the peninsula up there as they've they've tried to work through getting a waiver of the mmpa so um I, you know to me yes i mean it's beyond bigotry it's it's racism um it, but i i don't think you know i think most people who aren't really steeped in animal rights ideology and the movement, you know, promoting the movement, um, don't don't look at it in that way. Oh, of course we should treat animals well and, you know, cruelty to animals and all of this stuff. I mean, that's kind of the message that's out in the general public. But those who are are really steeped in it, rural people, we had a mountain lion attack, um, nearly killed a nine-year-old girl a year and a half ago. Um, while well, most of these folks were on, on the commission. And um, it, it was sort of like, we couldn't even talk about that, <laughs> you know, because, oh, those are rare events. You know, it, it's just rare. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it's kind of a cognitive dissonance or something that, that, um I don't know, that they're able to carry out.
1: I lived in Washington State for a few years as a newspaper man. And one of the observations I had, I lived on the West side, on the East side of Seattle, was the ap- the unbelievable appetite that was going on then and probably is now for land development. Every bit of flat land had a house on it or it was being paved over for something. And so the, the wholesale conversion of wildlife habitat into human use was unlike anything I'd ever seen or experienced previous or since really. And I'm wondering if some, some of the, I just feel like it's incompatible to imagine not managing wildlife in such a converted landscape. And the, the idea that we can have this trophic cascade or that we can allow these natural processes to, to, uh, come to the fore when we've converted wholesale, huge chunks of country is more cognitive dissonance. I think that's a really good word for this because I just, I have a hard time seeing how it can work. And in the meantime, I feel like almost it devalues humans as a result. And with those, those two things working together are just crazy to me.
2: It, it I, I strongly feel it devalues humans. And, and um, again, listening to some of our um, indigenous co-managers, I was really struck um, when we were, were dealing with, you, you know, the loss of one of our quality elk herds in southeastern Washington. Um, it, it's just it's on a tumble. Um, and, uh, there's been poor recruitment there, of course, you know, as there always are, there are a multitude of factors that underlie it. Uh, there've been a lot of wildland fires, although, you know, as our biologist points out down there, um, that is opening up habitat, but there've been other stressors, severe drought and, and a hard winter one year. And, um, uh, but, but, um, <clears throat> so we, we did an assessment, um, and, um, because the calf recruitment has just been horrible and it's mountain lions that are, you know, munching all our, all our elk calves. I I mean, all of them, (laughs) practically, there was practically, you know, no survival to the first year in the first year of the mortality study, they're doing three years of it. So, um, you know, we wanted to, some of us (laughs) wanted to try to use hunters, um, to to you know just provide a little relief um, to the cows so they could raise their calves a bit and um, the the so so the you would tell us co-managed this this um, uh, herd with us and, and they came over and talked to the commission um, and you know they're real leaders in articulating first foods and and um, how that melds with their very sophisticated fish and wildlife management, you know using both traditional and and uh, and contemporary practices and and you know he spoke about very articulately about the human as a member of the whole ecosystem I, you know it really moved me, but um i i I think that that it just always strikes me it 's like you know humans aren't part of this and what could be more fundamentally part of it than a human hunter really, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that um, it, it, it excludes humans, <laughs> um, but it's, <laughs> I, oh, and, and then the, the other piece about management is um <clears throat> There's a real push against uh, the idea of population objectives that came up as we were dealing with um, with the elk herd. Um, there's a lot of agriculture in that area, so you know our biologists are working to have a quality elk herd for hunting, and to deal with the conflict in the ag fields and to come up with a number that works there. And um, boy, as we were discussing that, um, there was a lot of pushback from um, the uh, animal rights members of the uh, commission that we had this, it wasn't a, a truly, a, you know, only a biologic number. It was a social and biologic number that we, you know, you take carrying capacity, what can be socially tolerated. And that's how we manage. And, you know, that gets to your point, Andrew. That's how we have to manage in the state that is the most crowded in the West.
0: Wow. Uh, (laughs) Again, I I hate to be here shaking my head like this, Kim, but your frontline report here of what is really happening and how this is a movement, it is a mindset, I hope has the audience listening. You are telling us the roadmap that was used to get to where where it's at in Washington, even you and a few other commissioners who tried to bring resistance or or balance, were kind of, well, oh, we won. Get out of the way. You know, get it, get on board or get the hell out of the way. Uh, I hope the audience is listening to this because if you live in a state that is urbanized that has a very well, I guess all of our states have hyper partisan, seems like governors and legislatures anymore. I mean our our governor in Montana got rid of of uh uh Andrew off our commission because he got appointed by a governor from a different party. So uh, I, I guess it, it exists everywhere. But this should be a tale. This this should be a flashing red light, if anything, this is like you're on the bow of the Titanic and someone's saying, there's an iceberg right ahead of us here. And someone says, ah, no, I'm not going to worry about that today. You are giving us the the, the real-world instance of, of how this manifests, of how it's happened, and how it then permeates to every facet of wildlife And the competition of values, if you want to, I don't, maybe not competition of values, the recognition of diverse values. And it seems like in Washington, if you aren't of this narrow value set, your values, your ideas, your your relationship with wildlife, it doesn't matter today. We're we're going to cook up our own policy. You talked about this policy that got drafted kind of behind the curtains and some of you got let in at the end and then it, it came back to what it really was, you know, what they came up to start with. That's frightening to me. They, that's a, com- from what I've read of it and heard of it, it looks like a complete discard of every principle we've used across the 50 states and, and Canadian provinces for managing wild things and wild landscapes. I'd be curious,
1: Kim. Yeah. It's to use in Randy's example, this roadmap that you've na- navigated and, and led us to this point. If you're comfortable looking ahead, where does this lead in practical terms? What how is an agency funded if hunters are devalued, if, if, if there's not going to be hunters funding this, how are populations managed if hunters are not active participants in it? What does this look like?
2: Oh, I, it, it worries me greatly um, I, because I, I, I am a true believer that in our human crowded world, um, and and that's the reality, and all the impacts that human have humans have on on Earth. That um, the only way we're going to preserve species is through conservation and man- and management. Um, I, that that conservation really is management. Uh, that we have to, and 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 that these have to be both, um, biologic and sociologic processes to be, um, durable. Um, so I, one, I hope that, um, what this the, the process that's happening now in Washington is not creating something durable. I mean that's just my hope um, because it, it is excluding. I mean that it'll fail because everybody else is excluded. Um, but um, I, I, I still worry. I, I think um, that uh, the notion of um, animal rights and preservation, Um, is leading to, um, so think of some of the threats to wildlife conservation, Um, the biodiversity loss, habitat loss, invasive species, climate change. Um, It really, the values that they bring to those needs harm them. Um, invasive species. I mean, you know, you heard this discussion. We don't like to talk about them as invasive species. It's like, oh yeah, I only certain of, I mean, what do you, what do you think? Or, or, you know, this whole thing with, <laughs> what with are the coyotes they, <laughs> and, and the coyote derbies. And it's like, okay, so I'm looking forward to a world that's full of cockroaches and coyotes and raccoons and, and, um, <laughs> slugs or something i you know i mean i if if i take it too far that's that's what i i'm afraid we're getting to so um i i i appreciate that that um you know this is now being talked about and and trying to make the other stakeholders the bulk of stakeholders aware of what's going on i, I the hunter's um, and, and other stakeholder communities in Washington are awake and they're trying to organize. And um, we're, we're really working hard. Um, but, you know, I'm public health, so I believe in prevention. Um, <laughs> you know, once you've, got the, once you've got the problem, it's much harder to take care of. They're working really hard. They're working on how to message um, one of the things that I like to talk to hunters about is, um, uh, you know, y- when you go talk to the commission, um, you're probably not being heard by the commissioners, particularly they've already got their, their ideas. Think of it as you're, you're talking to the public, um, you know, cause this, the, um, and it is time to get out of your communities and start. I, I tell them, you know, tell tell hunters stories, talk about your culture, talk about the importance of food, you know, t- tell your sausage recipe for heaven's sakes. You know, I mean, just, um, you know, get out there and, <laughs> yeah. and um, talk about how meaningful your culture is in a heritage sense to your family, first hunt. Tell all those stories, and um, I, I think that's important. The other approach we're trying to take is, is um, you know, we've got to call them on process um, because, I, you know, they're they're breaking all the rules.
0: Yeah, I uh, the the downside, if there is right now, that is in my head, is that. I just saw three commissioners get appointed in Colorado that is following the same lack of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the respect for the institutions of wildlife management, a lack of respect for the varying values in Colorado. And it's almost like the playbook, hey, this worked in Washington, let, let's hurry up and let, let's implement this in Colorado, and and let's go here and let's go there. And I I hope that people who are listening to this podcast are thinking about this, thinking about that. Yes, this is something we have to address. But you're pointing out some really long term issues, also, Kim. Where I don't think as hunters, anglers, other users of of food system, natural food systems that we've done a very good job of telling our story. We have not explained our culture, our connections, our relationships. If anything, we've gotten defensive and maybe we've said some foolish things and we've behaved in ways that it's like, ah, I guess I had to do that over again. I maybe would have done it a little differently. But you are saying what I think has proven to be effective. Go tell your story. Be proud of, of what your contribution to this system is and don't give up. Don't don't just walk away and say, well, that's how it goes. You have a story to tell. We have a story to tell in our community. And people like you, to, to hear the reinforcement from someone like you who's not a hunter to say, you people need to come and tell your story. Explain why this is valuable. Explain your relationship. To me, it's like, yes, that's, thank you for, for affirming that. And I hope the audience Is hearing that because that's what we have to do we have these these current pressing issues in states like washington and colorado but it goes beyond this the the relevance for for this institution of wildlife management that has got us to where we are today for things that we love whether you're the quote unquote traditionalist and and consumptive user or the non-consumptive user the bigger long-term picture of this is someone has taken some cracks at the very foundation of that. At this point, in it's time to time to wake up.
2: So, so one of the arguments that um, I think has gotten really old and and isn't uh, very helpful is the, the one about funding. Um, I, you know, I think it, it's worth pointing out that that's traditionally how fish and wildlife departments have been funded. Um, but um, in that regard, um, I, I what is being really devalued um, in this process over the conservation policy and, and the arguments is um, Hunter's, Hunters have, in their organizations, their conservation organizations, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, um, the, uh, the Mule Deer Foundation, you know, just on and on. Um, the contributions to um, both conservation science and on-the-ground conservation um, they are phenomenal and continue to be. And, you know, if we push that out, I mean, Ducks Unlimited, 16 million acres of wetland restored, (laughs) you know, and the only, the only native bird populations that, um, are not declining in North America are wetland birds. (laughs) And that's not just ducks, folks. Um, and I, you know, it just, um, So talking up those kinds of conservations and really getting those organizations out. The work that Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is doing on the big conservation need that we've realized with our big game and other um, large species, migratory corridors, the science that they're doing on that, the fence work. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's cutting edge. It's where the best available science is. Um, and they hold claim to that. And, uh, the, you know, the sportsman's community and their conservation organizations hold claim to that. And those are part of the stories that need to be really highlighted.
1: I think we're, we're going to have Tony Wassley, who is former director of Nevada Department of Wildlife, and now the um, head of the Wildlife Management Institute on one of these episodes. And he's framed these sort of uh, populations of wildlife interactions, you know, with these, some of these terms will be familiar, obviously the traditionalist and the mutualist, the hybrid, but he's also identified. And I think we've all seen this is the distanced citizen, the person who really doesn't think about wildlife who doesn't have a capacity because they just don't, it's not part of their vocabulary or everyday experience. And I look at the I-5 corridor in Washington state that is so urbanized and converted and so many people are have got lots of other things to think about jobs and raising healthy children and things that don't account for wildlife or wildlife don't account in in that worldview one of my worries and i'm interested to get your perspective on how we reach them but they are shut out from a lot of this conversation of the good work that is being done on the conservation front the The sort of um, trench warfare that's happening in wildlife management right now. So I guess one thing to tell our stories, but how do we reach those people um, who are ultimately going to decide the future of this conflict?
2: <laughs> I wish I had an answer to that. Um, so, I think that um, it is very human nature to be attracted to non-human animals um I it's I you know it's where we come from um, and so even if you're you're not having a lot of interaction you have some sense of relationship to non-human animals you know it may be mostly coming from Discovery Channel but it starts with um, almost everybody thinks they like non-human animals. Um, But, you know, these relationships are um, very diverse. um, And for those who are distanced, probably less formed, you know, by a, a set of values than those who are more engaged. And so... You know, the starting point is understanding that it is very human to want a relationship, even if it's, you know, a mental, emotional relationship with non human animals. And, you know, that's what I think it's very easy to reach with the, oh, animal well being shouldn't be cruel, that kind of message. And that Stakeholders with different kinds of well, I mean, we all have relationships about not being cruel and that sort of thing. You know, fair chase and blah blah blah. But um, you know, it's very important to figure out our messages um, about relationships to non-human animals that that feed those kinds of feelings, those needs it's hard. Like I said, you know, it's kind of hard work to work with diverse values, but um, uh, certainly um, stakeholders who are really engaged with non-human animals need to help um, form those values for those who are, or or inform those values for those who are more distanced.
0: Yeah. You know, you you look at how many Americans have a pet. That's one of our expressions of our you know, our, our non-human animal relationships. Yeah. And I know some people may not think about it in that context. You know, Shane Mahoney, I've, I don't know how many times I've had him on the podcast, and he says, you know, if you take a bunch of kids and you give them a bunch of Lego toys, they're kind of happy. Put a puppy in there with them and watch them forget about those Lego toys. And he, he talks about how we have this inherent uh just instinctive whatever it might be relationship with non-human animals and so I would hope that even the the people who in this category if you want to call it that of distanced uh, still share values of wanting to see wild things wild places robust landscapes and maybe I'm naive but I think they're open-minded that they understand that you know there are other people who live different types of lives there are people where this is part of their food it's part of their culture it might you know for some indigenous people might be part of their spirituality there's a whole different set of views and and perspectives to this than just okay you know we're we're six commissioners and this is how it's going to be if you don't like it you know move to montana or something uh I, I I'm I don't know how to reach them Andrew I, I don't know that I have the answer of how to reach them because the, in our circles we don't engage you know there's not a lot of engagement with folks uh, in that kind of situation but I, I think for me I, I it I don't want to come to it with the bias that somehow they're not they don't
1: share my same love for wild things. <laughs> I think too, part of it is simple exposure. You know, one of the parts of that relevancy roadmap that AFL worked on was looking at foundational relationships with the natural world. And for a lot of America, it's it, there are we talk about food deserts in urban areas, we talk about education deserts in some rural areas. There is there are ecological deserts in our city centers, places where it is really, really hard for a citizen of America to interact with the natural world. One of my great hopes about, you know, one of the things I think that wildlife agencies can do a masterful job about is introducing wildlife and natural resource education to people, whether it's through the schools or whether it's through neighborhood parks, creating those opportunities. Because I, I agree with both of you. I think it is a natural human condition to gravitate toward that relationship. It's something that's hardwired into us. But, I would hate for for that uh, expectation to be lost in in sort of the nebulous talk about wildlife management at sort of the the tip of the pyramid. The base of that pyramid are those relationships with the natural world, and and you look in Washington State; it's all around you. You can see Mount Rainier on clear days. You can got the Puget Sound or along the I five corridor. You've got beautiful rivers, and 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 I do hope that we don't deprive citizens of those relationships while we're talking about these bigger issues.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, So a good news piece of of Washington is um, they've developed a new program called, um, the staff has, um, Communications and Public Engagement, I believe. And they are really building an outstanding Communications department um, that has worked with um, our our K twelve um, uh, oversight body and actually developed a curriculum that can be adapted into K twelve um, education and and meets some of the you know educational requirements. So, you know, I that's I think a real step forward. Um, the the kinds of things that we really need to kind of lean on the agency and profession to um, be doing. And I, you know, I think that's been some of the relevance talk that they've been having is, you know, what, with all these great communication tools um, and, and, you know, another point is, I think um, there's been a tendency and there is in science agencies to talk about outreach we're going to tell you, no, it's engagement. <laughs> and I think the profession is trying to understand how to do that better. So,
0: so Kim, with your eight years of experience and now you've been off the commission for, what, five or six months, something like that?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, something like that. You,
0: you've been a very active participant in your post-commission role. Uh, all of us, all of us who are interested in, in wildlife management are there cheering you and thanking you, uh, from that eight years of experience for the audience, for others who either, maybe they live in Washington or maybe they live in some other state that maybe is more urbanized or maybe they live in Montana or it's not that urbanized. You got any words of, of advice, things to look out for? Uh, ways that you think maybe it, looking in the rear view mirror of you know, I I wish we would have seen this coming, or I wish we would have saw that coming, or I wish we would have done this, or wish we would have done that. Uh, and, and it, that's a pretty wide open thing, but any thoughts come to mind of, of what you maybe would have uh hoped for to be different along the way, but not just the outcome, but the, the that could have prevented some of the outcomes?
2: Um. So uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I think Washington is, is lucky, although it's not working all that well, and that, you know, our, our sort of um, the department mandate states the public trust doctrine. I think it's important for stakeholders to understand what is the authority of public trust doctrine of wildlife management near state. And whether it exists at all, because I understand some states, you know, it, it's just sort of common law. Oh, this is how we practice. And you don't have any official authority. And that's probably something to work on if you don't, if your state doesn't. Um, I, I, I think one, um, it, um, it, you know, if it's being managed appropriately as a trust. Um, it ensures fair and equitable distribution thinks future um, and it's the way that we should manage natural resources for heaven's sakes so so that's one you know understand what is the that authority in your state um, and then second um, pay close attention to the, to your governance and um, I think, um, you know, sportsmen and women have long been engaged in uh, Washington's wild fish and wildlife governance, but it's been this kind of routine. Okay, they've published the, the rules. Um, I'm going to go testify. I don't like this one. I want it fixed a little bit. That's, you know, when, when um, the spring bear thing first came up um, three or four years ago, it um, you know, it's a limited entry permit um only uh hunt. And so the questions it was, so it had to be uh re-upped annually, you know, and it was where are we going to put the permits, um, how many permits, um, you know, what management uh issues are we taking a look at here? Um and and <laughs> the hunters would all come in and and go, we've got a healthy black bear population in Washington, which we do. And um Make this over the counter. <laughs> and and they were still testifying that, not realizing that they were being broadsided by, you know, this is unethical and we need to cancel it. Um, so so be really alert to your commission and, and don't be in the routine of, oh, this is my rule. And I need to take a look at what's out on it and to see if I need to testify that it's, uh, you know, it's beyond that. It's because none of our wildlife agencies are, are simply, um, hunting and fishing organizations anymore, simply because we have a decision that, States are responsible for all the fish and wildlife in their borders. So, you know, there's a lot on their plates. And it's pretty easy to come at a broadside if you're not paying attention to all of the issues. So those are the things I think about. Um, it could be helpful. Prevention's hard, but um, it's not going to happen if you're not paying attention.
0: <laughs> yeah. The question, as you were talking about that, are your gubernatorial appointments confirmed by a legislative body
2: it's interesting um yes however um you can still serve um and and not be um and not be uh, confirmed i actually when I was appointed, I think there was a commissioner who has served nine years without ever being confirmed, so that's permitted I, I had a senator tell me. We're not the other Washington. You can serve if you're not confirmed. Um, I did eventually get confirmed, but he was one who wasn't planning to confirm me. <laughs> I was asking him to. And um, so so um, that's kind of a problem. And I actually, you know, I, as I said, we've got laws that should set up a functioning commission, um, but they're not... Uh, high priority laws for most of our elected officials. And so I was actually told by a high ranking Senator when I uh, went to that Senator and said, you know, we've got a problem with uh, commission appointments here and um, maybe you should look at confirmation. And, and he goes, cause you know, our, we're a single party state right now, big time. And, um, he so this a senator said, you know, we're not appointments aren't that important to us and we're not going to touch this one if it's political. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of leeway <laughs> to work within our statutes.
0: Oh, so I guess as I read from that or take from that is if you are listening, folks. You should probably be thinking about how these processes work in your state. Could they easily be co-opted or hijacked? And if so, take Kim's advice and try to prevent the problem rather than try to cure the problem. And uh, take action now to – whether it's your legislature or whatever to say, look – we are seeing some examples where the good faith idea that people would be that the appointment process would not be abused, especially in an apolitical uh, agnostic concept of wildlife and wildlife management. That is no longer the case. We can't just rely on the default of, Oh, nobody would do that. Uh, I'm taken from that. Your message is uh, pay attention to those things. Look at you them bet. in your state. Uh, and, uh don't don't let the the disease get there. Exactly as you're finding in Washington, it's a whole lot, <laughs> a whole lot harder to cure the disease once it's there. If you want, if I'm saying that properly, but oh man, Andrew, what are, what are you thinking on this? I, I have so much that Kim has laid out here that I I'm just it, it's troublesome, it's worrisome. But one last question I wrote down, Uh, Kim, you saw me making notes over here. As a commissioner, uh, in you being a public trustee, did you ever consider or did anyone ever say to you, I don't think you're following your fiduciary duty and how good is your malpractice insurance? (laughs) Have have you ever felt that you would be litigated as a commissioner because – you took this oath. You took. You accepted a position that, by your state statute in Washington, defines that you are one of the trustees. And every state has laws related to what trustee duties are and responsibilities. Anyone ever approach you and say, "Hey, you are one of these nine commissioners," you might find yourself in court here. Uh,
2: I I um, I recognize that. Uh, I, I feel i mean i i don't think I've ever been told that but I certainly feel threatened that we were not following our fiduciary duties that <clears throat> make us vulnerable um uh, you know I worked in government all of my life um and uh i <laughs> i actually um I'm sort of used to litigation as a government official. (laughs) My first 20 years was as a prison doctor. And yeah, I used to get sued for cruel and unusual punishment in federal court. (laughs) Even though I tried to be a good doctor. (laughs) So, so I understand the threat, but um, I, I, I think it's a vulnerable vulnerability i I take the fiduciary responsibility really serious I mean that's why I work in government it's to serve it's to serve people and it has duties and obligations that's what it's about really and and I take that very seriously
0: I, I don't want to go down that red hole too far, but I just—I was just curious <laughs> if that's ever come up because I there's no state I observe from afar that is further outside the bounds of all the duties of reasonable and prudent transparency, accountability, no self-serving uh, representation of all beneficiaries. You, you check every trustee duty and responsibility and it's like the commission in washington has violated it's like they said let's see the box let's make sure we check every box here and uh so i was just curious if that's ever come up
1: i, I has, is there any energy around litigation right now i mean you know your your letter regarding the the new conservation policy lays out a lot of sort of blatant uh, violations of this trust responsibility. And I'm just curious, is there energy around a lawsuit there?
2: Um, I think it's being investigated. Um, So our major um, uh, uh, sportsmen's conservation organizations have come together in a coalition. I think they're sort of modeling on what's happened in Oregon, um, they were effective, you know, recomposing their uh, uh, their commission, which was, I guess, kind of a nail biter, but they got it through. But you know, working as a coalition, and and we're seeing that now in Washington. They're they're really trying to come up with this. There's just tremendous frustration right now um, in the community that they're just um, is it's like, I'm not being, we're not being heard. We're just totally discounted. Um, and that I think uh, is leading to, um, you know, some organizations, particularly taking a look at, um, uh, where there are vulnerabilities. Um, so yeah, I, I think maybe it's being looked at at least. It's certainly a strategy of the other side
0: <laughs> yeah it's that's that right. that's the other part that enters my mind, Kim is the other side is lawyered up they they yeah. you know they they have far fewer scientists on staff than they do attorneys yeah uh, that's uh, if you want if you graduate from law school, you got a pretty good chance you're going to get a job at one of these litigant groups <laughs> it's it, it, but, but yeah, we've got, we've always had this hesitancy on our side.
2: Well, I, I think the challenge is um, what is litigated. Um, you know, our like Endangered Species Act and Environmental Policy Act and everything actually set themselves up so that that um, enforcement is through litigation, and and it it is generally procedural questions that are looked at you didn't dot all the i's and you didn't cross all the t's and eventually the agency gets it right and but it goes it draws on and on and on the questions we're looking at is a little bit different but it is why i believe it's very important to keep an eye on process because as we've been talking about, this is broken governance. It isn't even governance, public trust governance, for heaven's sake. And so, so um, you know, the, it is um, again crossing eyes and or, or crossing teeth and dotting eyes um, that maybe we need to learn how to look at and challenge.
0: Huh. When, when you joined the commission, uh, were you given any training in public trustee duties? I mean, you've, you've always been in govern, government, and so you have a big understanding of, of that. But have did you or any of your uh, fellow commissioners get a three, five-day, whatever, training in public trust duties and responsibility?
2: When I joined, uh, there was really <laughs> no... Um, uh, training of any sort. Um, I actually started engaging more with WAFWA and that's where I, um, learned a lot of this and have thought a lot about it. Um, and, um, uh, but I, the, the staff is now, um, orienting commissioners. I've encouraged them to incorporate, uh, the Afwa. um, a commissioner training manual. I think that there's been pushback to that um, from from the current commission. I, you know, things like uh, commissioners should believe in the mission of the agency. <laughs> that doesn't go over very well right now. So, oh yeah.
0: man! <laughs> uh, wow! Andrew, you had any final questions for Kim? I know you got to run and coach this, the Glasgow Scotty's
1: track or cross country team. So I guess just an observation. And that is that it's easy to be demoralized by this. And, and I think that was probably what got Randy and my attention about this is like, wow, this is a problematic time, but I'm actually pretty encouraged and inspired because I think our community has taken so much for granted and has, has lived on sort of the, the fat of the land and gotten lazy and distracted, I think this is a great mobilizing moment. And, and so in a lot of ways, I think what you're talking about, you're a messenger from the future, Kim. Um, I think we need to pay attention to it, but I I think it's not enough to just pay attention. I think, as you're saying, we now need to get off our butts, get together, Collective action is, is, is necessary, but so is what we've just talked about telling our own story, why this is so important to us. And we probably will never change the minds of people whose values are set, but I think we can do so much within the great expanse of uh, unaligned people who will finally decide this. So I'm excited by the, by, by your message, a little depressed, but pretty excited.
2: (laughs) good <laughs> I, I, I'd
1: add to
0: that Kim, you, uh, you may not see it but I, when I read some of your pieces and some of the things you're doing on behalf of, of wildlife and, and Washingtonians I'm very optimistic that the folks in Washington are going to get this back on the rails and it's because of people like you people I've had on this podcast from Washington it's because people care And, uh, I'm optimistic that it's going to get back on the rails. And as Andrew said, it's going to serve as, as a catalyst for the rest of us to quit arguing about little things like season dates and lighted knocks and, you know, slot limits or whatever. And we're going to take, we're going to lift our head up and we're going to look at the bigger picture.
2: (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kim.
2: I'll just add one anecdote. I, I, um, (laughs) I, that I I like to be out in the woods this time of year. Um, and so I'm, you know, constantly running into big game hunters and, um, it, it, there's a sort of approach like, oh no, you know, (laughs) um, oh, an anti hunter out in the woods right now. Um, but, um, so I find I have to take the first step usually and start talking to them and start hearing stories. And, and um, I, it, it, guys, don't be afraid to do it. I, I love your stories. I love your, I was down at the hardware store yesterday and the, the clerk had just gotten back from a fishing trip and he was telling me all about the steelhead he had on the end of the line. And, you know, I, I mean, I love these kind of stories, assume that's going to be the case if somebody's out in the woods in big game season they're probably interested in what you're doing (laughs) so share it
0: that's good advice i think in the hunting community we have a tendency to bring our bias that everyone's against us that everyone's looking to criticize us and we got to run and hide it's good to hear that from you kim i i I hope people take note of that also well, thanks so much, Kim. I, I, I can't thank you enough for being taking time to prepare for this podcast, record this podcast, for all the work you've been doing after your commission term has, uh, has expired. And uh, if ever our platforms can be of any help to you and others in Washington, uh, consider them your platforms to use. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thanks, Randy. This is a really good
2: talk. Yeah. Thank you all. Good seeing you. When the sun keeps shining.